Hello and a very warm welcome to this one-off show on the future of luxury travel. This podcast was produced by Monocle24 in association with Conrad Hotels and Resorts. I'm your host, Monocle's food and travel editor, Josh Fennett. Now, the future of the luxury travel sector will certainly be a fast-moving one and a tough one to fathom. Can small brands win big by telling better stories? Can long-haul travel really go low-cost? And will robots greet us in the lobbies of hotels in the future? Or might common sense and human courtesy prevail instead? These are just a few of the questions that we posed and discussed at a recent event at the Conrad Dublin Hotel. I was joined on stage by John van der Slice, the global head of luxury and lifestyle brands at Hilton, to find out about how he sees the industry shifting. Also present were Patrick White, the UK editor of intelligence-gathering platform Skift, Serena Gwen, the founder of Suitcase magazine, and Kern van Neersen, CMO and head of sales at Surfair Europe, a high-flying subscription-only flight service that's set to take off in Europe this summer. I started by asking John van der Slice of Hilton about who exactly today's luxury traveller is. Well, first of all, welcome to the Conrad Dublin. This hotel has just gotten a new life, and I think it's designed towards the new luxury traveller and some of the things that we've learned over the years. You know, there really has been a sea change over the last, especially five years. You know, everybody knew about the downturn in 07 and 08, And everybody kind of knew that luxury was going to come back. And it came back in a different way. But really what we didn't know was the influx of new luxury travelers. I mean, a lot from brick countries, people that are very tech savvy. They're looking for this blend between leisure and business. I mean, I see them in my hotels throughout the globe where you'll be in a Saturday afternoon in Conrad, Tokyo, and there'll be an individual there in the lobby that will have three business meetings and two social meetings, all intersecting in life. Very tech-enabled. Everything's plugged in. Everything's connected. So when we design hotels like this, we keep that in mind towards the kind of feeling of the kind of uh, traveler that's looking for not only great design, but also they want to feel like they're in Dublin when they're at this hotel. There's two other programs that we could talk about later that we have enabled technology for the Conrad brand, I think pretty much faster than than most. And those two programs are, uh, maybe I'll touch on the first one, which is called the Conrad Concierge, which is we've basically taken all hotel services and put it in an app. This app is 100% hotwired to everything you can do in a hotel. You can check in, you can check out. Pretty soon you'll be able to use this as your key. And basically, we have taken the kind of transactional thing out of it. And with your phone, you can even pull a valet car around if you wanted to. And that is uh, dubbed the Conrad Concierge. And that we designed that starting about five years ago, targeting this kind of new luxury traveler. And uh, Patrick, you've been an evangelist for the travel industry, certainly, and it's an industry that's been hugely influenced by technology, whether that's booking companies or companies such as Cohen's uh, that deal with aviation and travel. But have we reached a bit of a glut with technology? Do I need to spend all day working at a computer and then all evening booking my travel through it? I think it's interesting that maybe three or four years ago, we at Skift ran a survey, and it kind of revealed that people had, the, the travel industry was fully connected by that point, it was easy to do anything and you know, gradually we've kind of got more and more connected, we've got apps to remove friction points in hotels, but 
we've reached a point now where pretty much you can do anything on your phone. Every year we run a thing called Mega Trends, which looks at trends that are gonna, we think are going to be big during that year. And one of the ones this year was bringing the humanity back to travel. So people are very adept at using their phones, using computers to book and do anything. But we're seeing that people want to have the communication, the interaction with real people, whether that's in booking. This is not everybody, but you know, certain people are time poor and they want to have that interaction or they want the expertise from people on the ground in destinations. So I think while technology has helped to, in, help, help to remove lots of difficulties in the travel experience, we're now at a stage where we want to bring the humanity back to it, I think. And Serena, you've got a very flattering write-up and a handout on most people's seats where you're favourably compared to the, the, as the Mark Zuckerberg of publishing. Yeah. <laughs> but, but one thing you haven't used is new technology. You have a printed product, you work a lot across lots of platforms. Mm -hmm. Do you think technology is helping travel journalism coming from your particular background? Yeah, I think definitely. I think one of the reasons I started Suitcase was because I felt like most travel magazines had lost their creativity and they'd become really lazy and they were just catering to some very niche audience, so maybe just backpackers, honeymooners, and then business travellers. And there was nothing in between for a modern traveller who was smart, who was engaged, who cared, and maybe it was time poor, so we still needed to do that work for them. I think we started with print because we wanted to make a statement about how much noise there is out there. No one has a time now to research, travel on hundreds of different blogs, go on loads of different websites. So we wanted to say, don't worry, we'll do that for you. All you need is this. And then as we grew, we kind of just grew gradually with different platforms. I don't think, I think there's a danger in trying to do everything at once. I can't think of a really crazy new technology that would really help. Like, yes, we've looked at virtual reality, but right now it's not essential to tell our stories. I think you want to just be where the people are. So now we're focusing on social media and video. Um, and Cohen, if we come to you, um, your work is heavily dependent on technology because that's how people book these flights. That's how people see the schedules. That's how people basically interact with your brand. Um, I wonder how you keep that interaction good and positive and how you foster a good relationship with only the technology to sort of mediate your, the customer experience. Yes, you know, our, our booking platform is fully app-based. You have the ability to book, change or cancel flights up to 15 minutes before departure. But the real level of service, I think, still comes through our people. And I also think that both in hospitality and aviation, most companies have a, a huge amount of data that they possess about their customers. But what we still seem to not get to or get right is deploying that information to the right people at the right time in our organization so they can make an impact on the customer. A lot of the technology that we see at the moment is, is based around delivering services to customers, but not actually you know, what we know about you as a customer, making that you know, to the benefit of yourself and the, and the company, I think is something that we still need to do better at. And John, I sense that you're ready to jump in here. You and I had a, let's not, let's not call it a fight. Let's not a little call it tiff, a, a little tiff. Um, I certainly don't think that technology is the panacea that everyone believes it to be, and I think that not enough attention is often paid to the, the human role of things. But I defer to a greater knowledge yeah, so, of talents. Like everybody in this age, you know, we measure everything. You know, we have satisfaction surveys, and we kind of evaluated those that use the app, ordered room service, et cetera, and those that didn't. And what we found out was um, our scores for service were eight points higher from people that used the app. Now think of it, 
We took the human person out of the front end, but still delivered the service. And then we asked uh, our ratings of our team members are, and that was 10 points higher. What we did is we took the transaction out of the conversation. And you know, hospitality is a dialogue. Service is a one-way thing, but hospitality is both things. So it, was, it allowed our team members to deliver in just an unbelievable, inspired way. And frankly, the accuracy of everything was more correct than not. So, I mean, I get it. Everybody wants the human touch. They want the interaction. But if we can have you know, machines take out some of that transactional stuff, and it's happened in every age. I mean, it's happened in all in, you know, the manufacturing revolution, et cetera. I mean, people, the uh, kind of workforce or the hospitality, I guess, of hotels will find its way to even a greater level, I think. Um, and we're really bought in at Hilton, on, and all of Hilton, but in particular on our luxury brands, on using data we have uh, about folks that they offer to us, um, and then enabling it digitally. And uh, it's really opened the, opened the doors to a lot of uh, really great experiences. Surely that's good because it means that your um, staff at hotels are freed up to use their time to better serve the guests. You know, you've removed them from having to do certain things which can be replaced by an app, and they're now free to help out or guide or, or answer questions or that kind of thing. Yeah, and they have a lot more time to be mm. authentic too. Check in or check out. Like, okay, really? I just walked up to a front desk. You know, right? <laughs> I mean, they have a lot more time to look you in the eye, be authentic, and that's this whole stay inspired thing. I mean, the simple things, uh, and I'll talk about the 135 in a second, but simple things on, on the culture um, that we, uh, in our hotel, you know, if a housekeeper is helping clean up a room and sees running stuff, it's like, we'll put a little water, a little note, you know, here's for your next run. I mean, it allows for time for things like that. You're always gonna need a housekeeper anyway, but mm. it allows you to, it's just a different thought process. And so uh, I'll, I'll seize a word that you use there, authentic, and uh, maybe Serena, turn to you. Mm -hmm. This idea of authenticity of individual experiences is very prevalent. People don't always wanna go and stay in big box hotels and cities. They want to seek out or feel that they are seeking out new authentic experiences. Is this something that you've noticed in your coverage for Suitcase? Yeah, definitely. I think it's something that we specialize in and one of the reasons why we started Suitcase is that a lot of the magazines and blogs and websites were just featuring the obvious and we would try and go that step further and feature something that was local or was different and that could sometimes be it, like a Conrad in Dublin. Like it doesn't necessarily need to be this tiny little hole in the wall always that someone doesn't know about. And what we also try and do is we realize that, okay, yes, our readers are a certain kind of person, but within that there's just so many different tastes and interests and things. So we'll try and curate a good selection of different things and then allow people to choose for themselves. And Patrick, if I come to you, we discussed beforehand this idea that smaller brands are kind of winning big by having good stories behind them, by having a decent yarn, by telling people about their history, about their provenance, and letting people feel like they're kind of part of something, whether or not they're truly discovering it or not. Is that something you've noticed in your European coverage with Skiff? I think it's social media has democratised brand awareness and brand building because, you know, 30, 40 years ago, you had to have a big budget to get your name out there. You know, look at Virgin Atlantic when they were competing with BA in the 80s, you know, they had to spend big to try and get near them. Nowadays, you know, social media, a good campaign and a good story goes a long way. And I would say that, you know, any small brand who's looking in the travel industry to get out there, they need to have their 
story straight, their backstory, their history, their ethos. You know, it can't just be fake. It's got to be real. People will find you out because it's easy to now. Mm. And I think that's important. And Cohen, if we come to you, I suppose implicit in what we're saying is that there is one type of global luxury traveller. And clearly there are many, and clearly they hail from different places and have different thoughts. You're probably uniquely placed to answer a question about how the US and Europe differ, having launched the company in the US several years ago to great success, and launching now in Europe in June, I believe it is? Uh, yeah, at the end is, of June. Is there a, a huge difference between what the yeah, US Yeah, I think, particularly uh, on our business model, there is. I think the US customer is... Um, you know, very used to traveling greater distances and spending longer time in travel uh, than the European customer. I think, you know, take our business in California, our biggest route there is, is LA to San Francisco, as, as you might expect. And many of our members there actually use it as a daily commute. So they, they hop on our plane on a daily basis to go up and down, have their families based in LA, have, you know, their factories or works or their tech companies based in in Silicon Valley. I think that it will be a slight difference with Europe. I also think that operating in, in almost like a hybrid between commercial and private aviation, private aviation is more accepted in the US as a means of travel, whereas in, in Europe, I think quite often is, it is seen as ultra luxury and a bit of a show off sometimes. And I think that is something that hopefully so far will change. And we're going to come back to hotels in a second, but I think any, any panel claiming to discuss the future of the travel industry should probably address the massive changes in the aviation industry of which your company is part. And maybe, Patrick, I'll throw to you here to maybe help some people in the room understand the massive disruptions that are happening, but also from your kind of editorial mm. stance, what, what the future might be. I'm talking, of course, about long-haul fares over the Atlantic, different stopovers, and uh, people using planes, basically, to much, much greater profit. It's really interesting because you've got one and you've got a company like Surfair who do things in a certain way with the membership structure and then you've got traditional carriers and what we've seen now, we're in an age of cheap fuel and really fuel efficient planes and what that means is that a company like Norwegian can fly um, customers from London to LA for as little as £199. That's for a basic fare, then you add on your TV, you add on your luggage and you kind of build up from there. Whereas airlines like BA or Virgin, they've started from the other position. They've got an economy fare for, say, £400, £500 pounds return. And they're now competing with these companies who can charge a lot less. And we're seeing that BA, Virgin, Delta, all these companies are trying to kind of rethink the airline market, especially in the transatlantic market, which is a huge business for all of them. And so far, they are, they're realizing that they have to be more like Norwegian to succeed and customers are happy to pay less but then add on. You know, people may in the past have just, um, a few people would have gone for business class tickets, now people would, would go for premium economy and pay a bit extra to have certain facilities. They're happy to kind of segment the travel in that respect. So John, we've got our cheap flights, we've arrived. How do you, <laughs> how do you as uh, the operator of lots of hotels, make the experiences in each one of those different hotels match up to what Serena mentioned, this idea of authenticity, this sense of place. You know, it's funny, a lot of us are reaching and playing different roles, you know. <laughs> for example, on Conrad, we kind of reach into the community and find one hour, three hour, or five hour experiences that resonate with our guests. And it, we try to make it not be just the same thing you do from a tour guide. In New York, it's walking the High Line or going to Smith & Daughters. Here, you know, yesterday I went over the Penny Bridge. You know, from here I had an hour and and found a great pub along the way, so it was just perfect. <laughs> but you know, I think what we're finding is, and really all of our brands, embracing the neighborhood is very important to this luxury traveler because a lot of us have very 
tough lives and not a lot of time. But if we can really figure out a way and use people as guides, and then the currency that, that people take home with them is fabulous. It's, you know, not only is it Instagrammable, but it's, you know, I call it cocktail party cure currency where you can tell that story, you know, at the next cocktail party when you're back home because you really went to the, the pinnacle, the coolest little bar, you know, on the tower bar area. And Serena, do you think all media is created equal if Conrad, producer, a great guide that's used by all their guests, is that the same as a piece of editorial coverage? Because I think, curiously, we're in a time when technology has given a lot of people a lot of access to a lot of voices, but the quality of those voices, I think, is somewhat questionable. You'd probably, or you'd certainly, rather buy a suitcase magazine than read all the TripAdvisor reviews in a place. But do you think technology has done something bad to travel journalism if bloggers take things for free, post pictures and disseminate them. Does that create a slightly unfair reporting of travel and experiences? Well, I think people are becoming a lot more savvy now to what bloggers represent. I think they're not taking every post at face value saying, oh, that person's obviously flown to the Maldives and just is casually flouncing around, flouncing around in her bikini. I think there's this issue of trust with media that's really important and people used to trust TripAdvisor blindly, they used to trust bloggers blindly, they used to trust media and now I think people are turning back to media and recognising the value in having someone fact-checking your content. Like bloggers can just put things out there and then you know no one's fact-checking anything. We call it fake news yeah. in the US. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I guess that's what media happens too. I think nothing's perfect but there is a value to having people actually doing proper research and fact-checking. And I don't see bloggers or TripAdvisor as enemies. I think TripAdvisor is something totally different. We work with bloggers a lot, especially ones that are experts in a certain area, like food, for example, or are really good photographers or writers. And then it's a kind of mutually beneficial relationship. So they have a legitimate outlet for their content. And then we also have access to all their readers. Can I just go back to something John said interesting about hotels? I think you hotels made the mistake and this is where Airbnb has challenged them in that they, they were kind of apart from the community they were in um, and as travel changed they became more inauthentic and the best hotels now, like with the 135 thing they, they become part of the town or city where they're based yeah. and they're actually destinations in themselves as well. I don't know if any of you have been to Hoxton in London mm-hmm. it's a Hello. great hotel Hello. with Hello. a huge open space and it's part of people go in there, they don't just go to stay there, they go in there to work, they go in there to drink, they are part of that neighbourhood and I think that will help hotels beat or at least compete with Airbnb which is going for that authentic type of travel. John, I'm just going to come to you on the Airbnb oh, point. I was, I was saving it for, saving it for sorry, a bit later. Sorry, I interrupted no, you there. No, of course. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, and that's the whole idea behind uh, uh, getting these authentic uh, trends. More and more, our hotel design, our team members, everybody's integrated with the community. I have also Waldorf Astoria, which is a little bit more classic, Conrad, and then a new hotel named Canopy that uh, we've opened our first one in Reykjavik, which is a really, it's a perfect kind of blending of that kind of lifestyle Hoxton type thing. You're going to find every one of Hilton's brands is thinking this way now. We've really understood you know, the days of a luxury hotel where the, you know, you're in Santiago, Chile, and it's the same as Atlanta, uh, Georgia. That is so over. 
And it's really opened up this whole thought process with our great team members, our designers, our general managers. I mean, there's a new energy now because we, we feel we're responsible for this, you know? So, Cohen, I wonder if you have seen a shift. Obviously, hotels are reacting to different needs of uh, clientele, pushed perhaps a little bit by technology. It's my feeling that we work from mobile devices a lot, and maybe the boundary between the business traveler and the leisure traveler has got a little bit closer to one another. Do people who use your service tend to fly for business or for pleasure? So I, th I think you're right. You know, I think, um, you know, I call them trip personas. You know, you, you, when you travel, you're not always the same. You know, I could be, you know, in the same suit and I could show up on a Monday for a flight, but I could be a very different trip persona than I could be on a Wednesday because on the Monday I might be in a rush to get to my flight into Zurich because I have an important meeting there with the board or whatever. Whereas on Wednesday I might have a meeting as well, which is a bit later during the day. I'm a bit, you know, quieter. And actually I'm meeting with my family later down the day who are joining me for the weekend and spending time there. So I'm a different type of traveler. And I think around that you have different needs as well. So... I think yes, I think there's definitely a change there. I think that has to do with you know, us becoming a more global community. I think travel has become a lot easier. And uh, yeah, so how, you know, how we try and anticipate on that in our business on a day-to-day -day basis is, again, you know, trying to get to know our customers very closely. And my point earlier was about you know, trying to deploy that information that you have about customers. And I think that's the challenge that we have. I think for smaller startups, it's probably easier than for you know, big organizations. We have eight-seater aircrafts. You know, it tends to be about six, seven people on an aircraft such as that. So there's no reason why we should not be able to know why our people are flying, where they're flying to, and, and what their purpose of travel is. And try and do you know, special things for our customers to make them enjoy their time with us. And I suppose some aspect of that is their mingling as well. They'd meet like-minded people, perhaps strike up a conversation. Yeah, yeah. so because, absolutely, because, so good point. Thanks for uh, reminding me. Uh, <laughs> no, yeah, but, I mean, we're, we're a membership airline, and actually the membership piece is very important because it's, you know, one, on one end, it is a means to travel much more efficiently, and, and, you know, you save about a minimum of two hours per flight. But at the same time, you, you get access to a great network of people, which you spend you know, an hour to two hours on a plane with. Right around sunset, we might put a bottle of red wine in the middle of those seven people and say, enjoy the sunset. And you know, whilst you're at it, have a conversation with each other. And I think that is things through which we try and promote that. So a slightly light-hearted point here, Patrick. I saw in your, uh, your briefing notes that the cruise is back. Is that, <laughs> is, is that um, really part of the future of luxury travel? Well, that's what they want people to think, the cruise club. <laughs> yes. um, and they're desperate to get younger, cooler people to cruise. And, you know, I suppose you could say there's been some success. Some companies are doing it better, especially at the high end. But I think it's difficult because young people these days, the cruise is very... It's just completely different to how they're used to traveling. You know, freedom, exploring, interaction. Whereas cruise, especially traditional cruising, although it's changed recently, it's, you know, you kind of, you're on, a, you're on a ride and you can't get off. You go port to port to port, cruise excursion, back on the ship again. I think they will change. They will have some success. And they'll probably have more success going to markets like China than maybe uh, Europe or the U.S., that might be why they decide to go and spend the money there, but I don't know. They, they are desperate to try and get younger travellers and banish the, what was it, newlywed, nearly dead and overfed tagline <laughs> that, that. They, they've been lumbered with. Anyone on the panel considering a cruise for the summer? <laughs> John, I'm going to come back to you. Um, one aspect of technology that we kind of haven't discussed is the prevalence of booking sites, the way that people 
access experience and hotels through mediated experiences. They go to someone else's website, not yours, mm -hmm. to book hotels. How do you see that playing out? In well, the I think, uh, you know, from a distribution standpoint, I think uh, these OTAs, they play a role. We prefer to have a direct conversation with our clients. So um, a lot of the things that I talked about, there's a little bit different pricing for a, a uh, honors member. We now you can digitally check in and choose your room, just like an airline at Hilton Hotels now. We actually, in a thousand hotels, have a digital key where you don't need a plastic key card anymore. All that stuff is being accessed by that app I talked about, which is the Honors app. And adding value to that relationship is really important. I mean, again, we'll always have OTAs and we'll always have a role, but it's this conversation that, you know, in my Waldorf Astoria brand, I actually have, um, I know a little bit about you from CRM stuff. So I have a personal concierge when you make a booking that reaches out to you and offer you three things I know you'll like because I know your profile. I mean, it's not creepy, it's not weird, it's using information the right way. And those are the type of things I can do when we have this kind of direct relationship. It's harder when you don't have the access to the person's stuff. Serena. Can I just, sorry, I was just going to interrupt there. Can, I think hotels and airlines made a mistake in the 90s and early noughties. They gave... The technology wasn't as good as these OTAs, they, and they gave away a lot, and now they're trying to bring it back. And they're having some success, I think, in it, but it is difficult to convince the consumer that going direct can be cheaper, even though it can be in a lot of cases, because these Expedia and the like have spent lots of time saying, come to us, we'll, we'll be the cheapest price, and often they were in the past. So I think it's difficult, it can be difficult, and it's taken time to win back that, that trust, yeah. I think, in, in consumers. Yeah, and I think people value simplicity as well. And in the interest of keeping this question short for you, Serena, <laughs> is simplicity the new luxury? Yeah, I think it's probably since the recession that gold taps don't equal luxury anymore. No one wants to drive around in a green Lamborghini, sadly. <laughs> I think part of the reason it's linked to why people still read print is there's just so much noise and so much choice and when people go on holiday they are just so tired now and they just don't want to choose and they want to have someone to either choose for them or to have such little choice that it's just so easy and they can just relax and one thing that was we kind of can't finish the panel without talking about is I guess the prevalence of food as being part of the experience of enjoying a place. I suppose that's touched on a little oh, yeah, bit with you, sure. John, in yeah, no, recommendations. I mean, we have, you know, and we really do kind of our food product um, bespoke. You know, we do invite in Michelin star chefs when we need it. We have a whole history with Waldorf called Taste of Waldorf Astoria. You should really try Coburg's here. It's awesome, by the way. And the restaurant here has been so revamped. I'm sorry, sorry for the commercial, but it really is great. I've spent many nights there. <laughs> and John's buying everyone in the room dinner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, but I mean, it's it, that is part of the getting closer to local. Even the uh, pub downstairs, it's all locally crafted beers, which is you know pretty cool for a, a traditional hotel. But uh, yeah, for the luxury traveler. It's different in a luxury hotel. The restaurants are a destination to themselves. It's not just a restaurant to serve whoever's in the hotel. And that's a nuance that's very different. And we really spent a lot of time about thinking in a bespoke manner about, you know, we've, we're opening the Waldorf Astoria in Beverly Hills on June 1st, and Jean-Georges is doing all of the uh, restaurants there. I mean, that's the perfect casting for Beverly Hills. It probably wouldn't work in another place. But yeah, it's a huge part of the journey and we spend a lot of time thinking about it. 
I wonder if you could each give me a destination that you think is important for 2017 and why, John, for you that could be the Kyoto because you're opening a new hotel, it could be, it could be anywhere. But. Well, I, I am opening a new hotel in Osaka, but um, yeah, I mean, I think this, uh, this phenom in Reykjavik is unbelievable. And I see Europeans talk about it and Americans talking about it. And it's not just because I have a hotel there. It's just, and I think it's um, that model plus, let me give it another example, Edinburgh, which is, you know, from the UK, oh, this traditional market. You know, there is so much local activity going on in a place like Edinburgh with the, the restaurant scene. I mean, it's just exploding and it's, really, it's safe, it's local. So it's kind of a tale of two cities, which is the hot growing one and also the traditional one that, that all of us are unearthing the potential. I'd say Japan, actually. We're seeing a lot of people wanting to go to Japan because it, it's a safe country. I think a lot of people are looking for safety, so somewhere that doesn't have Zika, touch where there haven't been any terrorist attacks there. And it's not just Tokyo anymore that people are interested in, it's all the other cities, so Osaka, Kyoto, and we're seeing people go on these two or three week trips. It's even for honeymoon, it's becoming a really popular honeymoon destination. Come right to Osaka, July 15th. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Patrick, I assume you'll be cruising? <laughs> I would say Barcelona, not for any reason of the place, but because it's a really interesting location for something we've been writing a lot about at Skift, which is over-tourism. And certain cities that have got a lot of tourists and, you know, through Airbnb are getting more and more in there. And how, in Barcelona especially, there's a really there's a big tension between the tourists and the tourist industry there and the locals and how they interact and, and how some of the locals feel that they're being forgotten about and, and tourists are taking over some areas and it's a really big issue and Barcelona is a really interesting place to watch and look for that. And Cohen, finally? Uh, for us, it's Ibiza because that's our launch destination. First flights from Surfair will go at the end of June to Ibiza so that's uh, a biggie for us. So, so you'll be there all summer? I will be there regularly, yeah, for sure. It's a tough life. <laughs> Kern van Neersen there, CMO and Head of Sales at Surfair Europe. My very special thanks to our other panellists, John van der Slice, the Global Head of Luxury and Lifestyle Brands at Hilton, Serena Gwen, founder and editor of Suitcase Magazine, and Patrick White, UK editor at Skift. A very special thanks to Conrad Hotels and Resorts, with whom this podcast was a collaboration. I'm Josh Fennett. Thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. Goodbye.